strong tower and a refuge and a shelter for us. So I pray that for us in the sanctuary as we hear your word and for the children as they go off to friends of Jesus, Lord, instruct them to know that they can trust you. You're a big God. They can depend on you and lean on you. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. morning. Welcome to the 11 o'clock service. Haven't said that in a while, have I? There's a Jewish rabbi, David Kushner, who wrote a book uh, years ago called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Maybe you've heard of that book. It's a bestseller. Uh, the book was written out of his crisis of faith. His 14-year-old child died. That's, a, that's a, of course, a major crisis for him and his wife, for anyone. <clears throat> but the question is, if God is all good and all powerful, then why do bad things happen to good people? That's a question that goes through our minds. Why do bad things happen? There's a very simple but very insufficient answer to that question. You know, when you hear it, you say, oh, well, there are no good people. Well, yeah, Jesus said there are none good but God. He said that to the rich young ruler. And Paul said there is none righteous, no, not one. He said that in Romans chapter 3. And it is true that there really are no good people, but that answer is so inadequate when we face tragedies, isn't it? So please, don't use it. Don't use that answer. They don't solve the deep hurt that we feel when things go as we wish they would not go. This sermon series, we're ending the sermon series today. We've been looking the last five weeks at five books, the Old Testament wisdom books, wisdom from the Old Testament, and showing how the Old Testament is for all of us. It's for us even in Christ. We need to look into our Old Testament, showing how they connect with Christ. Sometimes we don't see that. I hope you'll see that in this last installment in this series. But this question is the problem of evil, the problem of evil and suffering in the world. We have to address it as we look at the book of Job. And, and uh, I trust that uh, this sermon will, will shine a little bit of light on that topic for us. It's, a not, it's not an easy question. Uh, we're going to look at just a portion of chapter 19, one of the central chapters in the book of Job, chapter 19, and we'll look at just a few verses of it, chapter 19, verses 23 to, to 27. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, be your overhead as we read it. You can stand and listen to God's Holy Word. <clears throat> oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Amen. God's word. Maybe seated. The title is Trusting My Living Redeemer. Trusting My Living Redeemer. That's what Job is doing. That's what I'm trying to do. And that's what I hope you're doing. Trusting a living redeemer. In the midst of all the sufferings and pains of this life, of this world, Jesus Christ can bring hope to our hearts. In the midst of all that we face, Jesus Christ can bring hope and meaning to it. Book of Job. It's an unfolding drama. It happens very quickly in the book. The first couple chapters, I'm going to give you a little brief overview of the book right now. Because uh, in, in the first chapter, you, hear, you see this man Job. He's, he's filthy rich. <laughs> he had all kinds of stuff. And, and so Job sees his life. I mean, Satan sees his life and says, the reason, God, that Job blesses you, that he's a godly man, an upright man, a righteous man, is because you do so many great things for him. 
if, if you, anyone who would be happy would get praise if you bless them like that. What if you didn't give them all those things? You think he still praise you? I don't think he does. He would. And God says, yes, he would. And Satan says, let's do a test. And there's a trial. And so the, the, the trial is in the first chapter, right there as the book begins. There's a four things happen. There's two enemy troops that come, and, there's, and there's, a, there, there's a fire and wind acts of God that happen, and, and his whole life is devastated. As, as he, he, there's, there's catastrophe after catastrophe that he hears that afternoon. He, he owned 11,000 livestock. They were all destroyed. He had servants to take care of all, those, all his stuff. His life, they were destroyed. Servants, gone. Livestock, gone. His family, his extended family who were celebrating, gone. In the tragedy. And he's left there. He and his wife are left there. And in, in chapter 1, verse 20, he says, Naked I came to this world. Naked I'm going to go back. I'm going to leave this world. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And, and the, the narrator says that he still didn't. Curse God, like Satan said he was going to curse God when he went through these things. Amazing, amazing. He passed the first test, and then comes a second test. In chapter two, Satan again looks. He sees, okay, Job, 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 you stood that test, but God, what, what if you touched him? What if you hurt him? Then he really would, you know. Then he really would not praise you anymore. God says you can, you can, you can impact him, but don't take his life. So that's what happens in. And, and, and Job gets sick, ridiculously sick, boils all over his body. He's, he's in horrible pain. He, he, he's a shell of himself bodily. And, and still, he maintained his faith. His wife comes to him and says, look, God, look, honey, why don't you just curse God and die? God, do what God's done. He lost his wife because, we, you know, we never see his wife in the book of Job after that. We wonder if she just left after that. She can handle it. I don't know. He lost something else. He lost his testimony before the world that he, that, that, of his God who could take care of him and, and, and all that he had. He lost that. People said, wow, what happened to Job? His God didn't take care of him. And he lost his peace with God. He lost his peace with God because he was troubled. And so three friends came. His friends came from afar when they heard about it. This was very public. He's a very prominent person. They came, and for seven days, they just wept with them. They were silent. They wept. They, they sat cloth and ashes, the, the Jewish tradition, the Old Testament tradition. They just wept and, and were with him for seven days. And then in chapter 3, we see his great confusion. He's in despair. He's just depressed. He's down. He wants to die. It's, he, he just, you know, it's a, he, so, so initially, yes, he, he was very, he praised God. And then as time went on, he got down. Very normal. Very natural reaction. Very frust frustration, which is going to build. So from chapters 4 to 27, what do we have then? This narrator gives us three cycles. There's a, there's a cycle of dialogue as these three friends begin to dialogue with Job about what's going on. There's Bildad and there's, there's Eliphaz and there's Zophar. Before we look at that, I want, I want to just give you my outline. I want to show you where I'm going with this. Because I want us to, I want us to identify with Job in his frustration. I want to, to identify with him in the deep frustration that he has. Now, maybe our frustrations aren't there now, but at some point in life, you will feel like him. Verses 23 to 24, he, he, his, he, he cries out like this, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. He wants it documented the way he feels, because he feels so hard. He never felt that way. He says, no one should feel that way. Let me doc it should be documented. Totally frustrated about what's going on, which you would be too. Now, now, that verse, verse, chapter 19, comes in the middle of the second cycle. There's three cycles. Three, the, the, as, as they 
talk to Job back and forth. In the middle of the second cycle, um, he's replying to the, the, the speech of Bildad. And he's very frustrated at that point as, <laughs> as he's hearing the argument. His world has fallen apart. And that's what, you know, this world is, is a fallen world. And, and, and crazy stuff happens. And, and, and the people of this world are flawed as well. And people do crazy things. I, I, call his, I like to call his friends the flawed friends of Job because they, you know, they're his friends, but they're flawed friends. They're not good friends. In fact, in, in chapter 16, verse 2, he himself calls them his miserable comforters. <laughs> his comforters come. He's my miserable comforters. He says that to them because they weren't much help to him after the days of silence. Eliphaz, an older, gentler, wiser guy. Bildad, kind of a moralist, uh, very simplistic, very impatient seemingly. Zophar seemed very logical and highly critical. These men started out fine, you know, for seven days. They didn't say a thing. They were just with him. Sometimes that's what you need. Someone just be with you in your pain to know that they care. Problem is day eight when they began to try to talk. They tried to explain to him why this was going on and how he needed to snap out of it. And the way to snap out of it was to just confess your sin, Job, and then God will restore your peace restore your joy back to you. They, they were saying, come clean, confess it. There's got to be some specific sin for this to happen in your life. Stop being a hypocrite. And then God will forgive you and restore back to you your life and your peace, your joy and your testimony. And this is the false assumption, isn't it? There's a false assumption that so many people have. Last week we talked about Proverbs. We looked at the fact that there are principles of success in, in, in the book of Proverbs in life. There are, you, know, you follow certain principles, things go well with you, but that's not an, those aren't absolute promises. Many follow the principles of God and they aren't successful. Many don't follow God's principles and, and, they're, and they're, they're successful. It, 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 it's not a cause, direct cause and effect uh, of thing that goes on. God is not limited to some formula. And that's the problem. We want to put God in a box. We want to think that God works a certain way if we do this, okay? And the formula that they're dealing with is a formula that maybe we, go, we deal with as we look at, at, at God and think of Scripture. If you sin big time, you're going to suffer big time. If you only sin a little bit, you're only going to suffer a little bit. That's the formula. That's the notion. They have God fit into a formula. Obviously, with all he's going through, he's done something horrific. God's getting them. Isn't it that the human default, though, when we see people going through difficult times, that there are, the human instinct is to think that, boy, they must, God must not like that person. You know, it was the default of the disciples. Remember the disciples in John chapter 9, they saw a man born blind, and they went to Jesus and said, Jesus, this man, who sinned, him or his parents? Remember that? That was their default. Born blind, oh, that's a horrible plight. That's got to be, maybe, he's got to be because of sin. His direct sin, his parents' sin. That, 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 that assumption is also the assumption behind uh, the book by that rabbi. That's the assumption. That bad things should not happen to good people. Bad things should only happen to bad people. Now, there's three cycles, we said. And the cycles, if you really, if you study them and you look at, at the way that, that they're worded, it's almost, you, you want to get, it gives you the, the sense of a courtroom scene. As you have, uh, uh, Zophar states his case and Job answers it. And then, and, 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 and Zophar, Zophar, uh, 
Eliphaz and, Zoph and, and Bildad and Zophar are kind of like his accusers. And Job is like defending himself. It's almost set, it's set up like a courtroom scene. It's a trial. That, that's, the, that's the picture that you have in, the, in these cycles, back and forth, back and forth. And um, after the cycles are finished, Job's final words before the verdict, there's silence. <laughs> and into that silence, there's another voice that chimes in that you, that you haven't heard from. Maybe it's someone in the gallery, I don't know. But it's a young man named Elihu. Elihu. He's, a, he's young, he's a youthful observer, he's a little brash, a little idealistic. And he jumps in where the others, and, and, and take this long, drawn-out speech in chapter 32 to, to uh, 37. But he wants to just show these old guys how to talk to Job and get through. He, you know, he's a young guy, just had his, he has his degrees. He knows how to, how, to, how to get it across. That's the attitude he has. He's idealistic, he's young. He wants to show these old friends of Job how to get through. He's got the, the wisdom of youth. When he, he finishes this long-winded discourse, and basically, Job ignores him. <laughs> Job just doesn't, just, I don't need it. I'm not even, doesn't even address him, doesn't even, and so there's silence again. And then somebody else who's been observing begins to talk. In a whirlwind comes the Lord, chapter 30, 38, 39, 40, 40. The Lord comes in a whirlwind, and, and, and he's the judge. <laughs> and he, he finally speaks, and the courtroom listens to him who speaks. And, and finally, th this very frustrated saint, Job, is going to hear a fresh word from God. He'd been, been wanting to hear a word from God, a fresh word. He wants the judge to weigh in on a case. And when God speaks in those chapters, chapter 30 to 41, first God, God shows him the universe and, and, and takes him to a planetarium and says, hey, look, look the, the, see that big, vast universe out there? I made that. And then he takes them to the zoo. He says, look at these animals, these humongous animals, these powerful animals that you, can, you wouldn't dare try to fight with them. I make them too. And, and so God is saying to Job and to everybody in the room, <laughs> you guys know who you're talking about here? Do you really know who I am? Now, this is consistent with the way uh, God often comes to us. He comes to us reminding us of his glory and of his power and of his His otherliness. We need to often be reminded of that. And Job initially was, but as he be inter interacted with the others, he began to get frustrated about this great sovereign God. So that's a little bit of, and we'll talk about the end of the book later, but, but just go, let's go back to our text now, verses 23 to 24. Um, Job cries out in frustration and, and because God is silent. God is silent. Right there, in the midst of all the, of his conversation, this middle cycle, God is silent and he he, that, that's new for him. God always, he always heard the voice of God. You, you, you ever dial the telephone and someone you knew and you, and you know they know you, they know you, you know they recognize your number, but they don't pick up. And that's frustrating, isn't it? That's what Job's feeling. God, pick up the phone. Talk to me. That's the anguish that he has. What does he want? What does Job really want? He wants his testimony to be recorded for all time about what's going on. So, because so, when he's gone and he thinks he's going to die, he, he's, when I'm gone, I, I want to know what has really happened here. I want to know, he wants to know 
why God put him through that. And it was God that put him through that. And, and it wasn't because he had done some incredible, hor horrific thing and was hiding it. He didn't want there to be a rumor that he'd done something and then quietly at his bedside he repented of it. No. He wants vindication. He knew, and he knew that God knew that the things he was experiencing were not because of some personal sin he had committed in some horrific way. Nobody else knew that. Everybody assumed there must be something. Now, here's a question for us as we look at this book. Did Job have false notions that he was perfect or sinless? I mean, it says in the first chapter he was blameless. He was upright man. The answer is no. God, God, God knows and Job knows that he's a sinner. Just a couple of verses. Chapter 7, verse 21. He says, why, in his frustration, he's talking to God, why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall live in the, in the earth. You will seek me, but, not shall, but I shall not be. Now, don't worry about the, the details of there. He's saying, I've got some transgression and, and, and iniquity, and he feels distant from God. and feels like God's not hearing him. But he, uh, he acknowledges that he has transgression and iniquity. Job 14, verse 16 to 17. For then... You would number my steps. You would not keep, my, keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. Again, Job acknowledges his sinfulness. Don't forget that as you look through the, read through the book of Job. Now, there are several kinds, there are different types and categories of suffering and pain in our world. Let me walk you through this a little bit as we move on. Some people experience pain and suffering inflicted from one person to another. It's human evil, one person to another. Haven't we seen that this week, this past week, the TV station in Roanoke, Virginia, where the uh, two reporters gunned down on live television for all to see there by a former colleague. That, that's a, that's a, an evil, a person, evil person doing something to someone evil, human evil. It reminds me of Luke chapter 13 where Jesus talked about evil Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the atrocity of, of slaying Galilean worshipers as they worshiped. Human evil. A second type of pain and suffering is what you might call accidental. It, it, it's, it's human negligence. Yesterday was the 10th um, anniversary of, of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, uh, over in the South. And uh, we were reminded, uh, of course, it was a natural catastrophe, but also many have noted that uh, much of the pain and suffering was because of ne the neglect of dealing with the problem of the, the terrain, of Lake Pontchartrain in New Orleans, which, is which because of the sea level issue, they needed to put levees up. And, and for years they knew that it, that, it, that it was a place that was potential for a major catastrophe, and they didn't do it. Human negligence. Now, I don't think the people who, who had power to do that were evil people who didn't like the people of New Orleans. It was human negligence. Some pain comes because of human negligence. Again, Luke 13, Jesus talks about a tower that fell. 18 people died. The people who, the engineers who put that tower together, you think they want to kill 18 people? No, but it was human negligence. They didn't, something was wrong. Human negligence. There's a pain and suffering that comes that sometimes just seems arbitrary. Arbitrary. So-called acts of God, the insurance people call them. The, the, over out in the West, there's these wildfires that just keep going on and on. We keep, they seem like every week, there's, they, they can't get rid of those wildfires. 
Psalm 29 talks about the voice of the Lord thundering over the raging waters and flashes forth like fire, the lightning, and shakes the wilderness. So-called acts of God. Then there's spiritual pain and anguish of soul that causes pain and suffering of the soul. And we experience that when we fall short of the glory of God. It's what I would call the Romans chapter 7 pain. Remember Romans chapter 7? The Apostle Paul says, the things I want to do, I can't do them. The things I want to stop doing, I can't stop doing them. What is wrong with me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Remember that? Thank God through Jesus Christ, he continues. But there's that Romans 7 pain, that anguish, of, that spiritual pain of soul. Real pain, real pain. And then there's, there's this pain of su and suffering that, that's caused by disease and bodily afflictions, like that, the blind man in John 9. One of our members, Joyce Chapman, was here this morning. She's, some of you might know Joyce, and 19 years ago, she was, uh, they, they found a tumor in her brain. And um, they just, we just prayed that she would live and you know, see her kids <laughs> graduate. And, and every year, they would, it, it grew to a certain point, then it stopped. It just stopped growing. They would go every year, they would check it. Every year they checked it, and it, it, didn't, it didn't increase until just recently, a few months ago. It's begun to grow. It's begun to grow. And, and, and as a concern, we're praying, I think, uh, September, September the 16th, the surgery, pray for Joyce. As, we could, as we've been praying for all these years, let's pray that, that God would still be gracious. But, but, but why does disease strike one person and not another person? We don't know. We don't know. So don't, don't, try, to, don't try to explain to people why, because we, you don't know. We don't know. We do know that God is wise. We do know that God is good. We do know that this life is not all that there is. We know that the scripture says that all things are going to work together for good, not every little detail, but together, all things are going to work for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. A couple quick applications. Don't, don't, don't give simplistic answers to people who, who are in pain. Don't give simplistic answers. You just come alongside them like the, like the, the counselors did for, for the first seven days. You just come alongside and, and, and weep with those that we were told to do in Romans. People don't need our supposed wisdom. They need presence. If they ask you for wisdom and ask you for guidance and direction about what, what you think might be happening, what is God doing, share what you think as an opinion, not a conclusion. Ultimately, in these things, only God knows. My point is simply this. We can identify with Job, who's going through this experience. The second thing in the text is verse 25. He says, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. My Redeemer lives. We, we need to identify with his exclamation, his public exclamation, because everybody heard, I know my Redeemer lives. I have a Redeemer. He's living, and I know that. And on the last day, he will stand upon the earth. See, Job's thing is this. Heaven knows what's going on, Earth doesn't. Heaven knows why this is happening. Heaven knows that he's vindicated as, as not some horrible sinner. No one on earth does that. He wants to be vindicated on earth, not in heaven. <laughs> he says, I know that ultimately the Lord will, that there'll, be a, there'll be a vindication here on earth on the last day. In the last, at the last. Very helpful book on, on Job is David Jackson's book, Crying Out for Vindication. He said, there, there are four things that all four players in the, in the drama agreed on. You know, Job and, and the three 
counselors. They all agreed about, uh, on these four things. That what was happening to Job was really happening. It wasn't, some, it wasn't a figment of his imagination. It was really a, a, a crisis. People had died. He lost his livestock. That was, it was real that happened. And, and, and they, 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 all, they didn't come to say, you're just making this up. That's the first thing. The second, they all agreed that God is sovereign, that, 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 that even, even Satan is under the authority of God. They believe that God is sovereign. These three friends didn't, didn't, they came, they all affirmed the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, if you look at what they said. The third thing is they believe that God is just, that God is the just God. He's, he's the judge. He does no wrong, and, we, and he's trustworthy. They believe that. All of them believe that. Job believed that. They believe that. He will judge evil. They all believed that God cared. That he was a personal God. That he personally intervenes in the affairs of mankind. He cares for Job. His friends would say, he cares enough for you, Job, that he will bring this upon you to bring you to your knees in repentance. <laughs> if you'd only Job acted upright, rather than harboring some secret sin, then all this would not have happened. If you would now just repent, and all this suffering you see would stop. And then Jackson says there's a fifth thing they didn't agree on. This is what they didn't agree on. And this is what the, the conflict and the tension of the whole story is. That Job is righteous. They said, Job, no, Job, you're not righteous. You're hiding something. Job said, I'm righteous. I've been upright. I've been blameless before the Lord. And, that, and, and that's the cause of the tension. It begins in the, I want you to look, think back in the first chapter. Maybe you can glance at that. Um, because something very important is we're told there when we're told about Job. We're told he's an upright man, he's a blameless man, he, he, he loved his family, he, was, he had riches. We're also told this, that he, he, was, he regularly, with his family, his fa extended family, they had offerings. Don't miss that. Why, why does one have offerings and sacrifices? We sacrifice this for sin because you realize that you need the mercy of the deity. You need the mercy of God. So, 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 so Job understand. Job, Job is not believing that his righteousness is his own, but he believes that his righteousness is because of the mercy of God. He has an outside, an outside, an alien righteousness, an outside righteousness that he's trusting. Philippians chapter three: not having a righteousness of my own but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans chapter 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Romans 5 is very important here. It talks about Abraham, Old Testament. He believed God, and it was counted to him, it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. You see, the Old Testament saints, they didn't know the name of Jesus, but they knew that somehow God mercifully would solve the sin situation, and the sacrifices that they submitted to pointed to Jesus Christ. So Job talks about my Redeemer. Somehow he, he, he senses that this redemption, this salvation, the sacrifice was going to come from uh, uh, maybe from an individual. We don't know. That might be going too far because this word my Redeemer is, is an interesting word. He said, I know this, that my Redeemer lives. He, he had a sense that a just, loving, merciful God, the one that he had worshipped, would somehow bring peace to this situation. That's all he knew. And on this side of the cross, we know the redemption of Jesus Christ. The, the word redeemer in the Old Testament is a very important word. It's the one who would, who would it, it, it has to do with purchasing. But if you remember the kinsman redeemer concept, we talk about this in the book of, of, of Ruth, I believe. Um, the, the redeemer was one who would take care of the problem that his, brother, his brother's widow would have. 
If, they, if, a, if a man died and was widowed, he had a wife, he had property, and the kinsman redeemer could be the one to, to marry him, to, to purchase the property, and to take care of that situation. So he's, a, he's one who took care of the situation. So now there's, there's a whole lot of technicality of how that happened, but I want you to just think, I think Job is thinking in a very general way that he, the, the redeemer, and I like to call it, he, he's the one who's going to fix the situation. The one who's going to come in and, and take care of the situation, the fixer. Now, it's, it's interesting that Job, in his despair, knows that God's got to do something and maybe send somebody to fix this situation because heaven knows, but earth doesn't know what's going on. J chapter 9, verse 32 to 33. He, look at his frustration here. For, for he is not a man, as I am, talking about God, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbitrator between us who might lay his hand on both. He's talking about the fact his frustration is that he doesn't think at this point in his despair that there's any way that there'll be an arbitrator. There'll be a liaison. There'll be a fixer. He's saying, there's, there's, I don't think there is a fixer, someone who's going to lay his hand on me and lay his hand on heaven and bring us together and bring wisdom to this situation. He says he's frustrated there in chapter 9. Chapter 16. Oh, earth, cover not my blood. Let not my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. And he who testifies for me is on high. See, the whole issue in, in, in Job is that he has a witness in heaven that knows the truth. No one on earth knows the truth. And no one is linking earth and heaven. That's his problem. He wants the truth to be known. So he's depressed, frustrated. The irony is that he says in these verses, you know, maybe when my skin is destroyed and maybe when I see my living redeemer... He'll stand on the earth, and, and vindication will take place. The irony is that vindication actually takes place at the end of the, of the book. We, we, at the end of the book, in chapter, chapter of, of uh, 38 to 42, when God, God shows up then, through the whirlwind. Now, if you read those chapters, you'll see that, that Job, it, it does say that Job repented in chapter 42, verse 6. He repented. But the question is, what did he repent of? Does Job repent of any particular major sin that he had done and they said, ah, oh, we knew it was something. Is that what happens there? That is not what happens there. Job repents of saying some things in his frustration that he probably shouldn't have said. That's about it. The issue is that he's a child of God. A frustrated child of God at times, but he's a child of God. He's living and resting in God's grace, even though it doesn't, he doesn't understand it completely. And, and, and what you know is that God doesn't go after Job. <laughs> Job repents. God doesn't go after him. God goes after Job's friends when the book ends. In fact, what God says, it's very interesting what God does at the end of the book. God, God says, I want these friends to go and do offerings and then go to Job, and, and Job, you can confirm if the offerings are pleasing to me. So in one sense, God puts Job in the place of a priest, of their priest. It's interesting. Job, I want you to be the media. I want you to be the go-between. Job there is a figure of Christ in one sense, isn't he? He's the priest. He's the liaison. He becomes that go-between for them if they would accept that. Point, point of application is that those who walk in faith, who are justified, who have the righteousness of Christ, will always be ridiculed like Job was, misunderstood. That's normal in a fallen world. Like Job, we should say, I'm still standing by the grace of God. Still standing. 
Last thing, very quickly, is uh, we can identify with Job in his ex- anticipation, his, his exciting anticipation in verses 26 and 27 that he's going to see God and he'll be vindicated. We have a living redeemer who will fix it for us. And until then, we live in anticipation just like, like Job. Romans 8, I consider, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Job's faith is that even if vindication doesn't happen until after he dies, and he expected to die soon, <laughs> he would finally experience vindication. He somehow understood something about God having a redeemer, having a mediator. He was right. God provided a fixer, a mediator. How did Job know this? Job 6.10 says, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. He knew the word. The word had come to him at some point. He, I'm not going to deny your word. Your word. Job does not stand alone in being, in being one who anticipates the Redeemer. Job stands in the line of Joseph in Genesis, who was innocent. He suffered in Egyptian prison. Job stands in the line of David, who was, who was exiled on the run, chased by crazy King Saul and his armies. Paul was alongside of the, the, the three Hebrew boys, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who suffered because they wouldn't bow to the king. There's a long line of people who suffered for the sake of righteousness. But all those individuals stand in line behind the leader of the, of, of the pack, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, the ultimate innocent sufferer, Jesus was beaten and spit upon and flogged. And he was the innocent one who died for sinners, died for us for the guilty. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, some quick applications. Suffering and pain, they, they are because of the fact that all of life is under a curse. All of life is under a curse. People live and then they die. That's, that's life. I grew up in a family of seven people. There are now five of them. Dad, my sister, they're no longer with us. They're thankfully with the Lord. God sent his son, a suffering servant, Isaiah calls him. Jesus was a sufferer. Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Another application. Earth, 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 this earth is not all that there is. There is a heaven and there is a hell. Let's talk about hell first. The Bible talks about hell being a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of fire, of darkness, of eternal separation from God. And God reminds us that we don't have to go there if we would trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And there's a real place called heaven. And God reminds us that if we would trust Jesus Christ, we can go there, and we can know that we can go there. And that's, and that, and see that, and that's Job's confidence that he has... His sins have been taken care of, and he is now trusting in the mercy of God. And we know that's in Jesus Christ. And last thing is that God, God promises that in the light of eternity, all of our pain, all the pains we experience on earth, all the suffering, is very, it's momentary. It's just a little while, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 5. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amy Grant had a song based on that phrase. In a little while, we'll be with the Father. In a little while, we'll be home forever. In a little while, 
We're just here to learn to love him. We'll be home in just a little while. Lots of songs about, about this. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. There is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son. Precious lamb, Messiah, the home over the world. Are you trusting? Are you trusting a living redeemer? What are you trusting? Let's pray. Well, the story of Job is a, is a famous story known throughout the world, known in various religions. There's other, even in other religions, there's elements of stories about a righteous man who suffered. Thank you, Lord, that he knew your mercy. and We know that his mercy was grounded in the cross of Christ. And I pray that would be true for us, Lord, as we seek to, to follow you. The pains that we experience in life, the sufferings we experience in life, we know that just like Job, there's answers. And we can hold on to you. And you will confirm our faith and strengthen us. And we might be a testimony to others. But I pray for anyone here, Lord, who's here who doesn't, hasn't yet made a commitment to, to trust you all their, to depend on you, to lean on you with all their heart and not lean on themselves. Lord, may they do that. May the gospel become clearer and clearer and clearer that your love is a deep love, eternal love. It's in your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's, let's, let's just do the benediction. I see the clock. It's ticking, so let's just pray a benediction, a blessing. We'll use this verse here. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.